Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Ryan Siebold, and with me today is the man who spent the last week being hunted for sport by Gary Busey, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How's it nah. going, buddy? I've been working on that one for you. Uh, good, man. Good. <laughs> I mean, aside from having to constantly look over my shoulder at a drug-fueled maniac just with a giant sniper rifle who could be coming anywhere, dude. Uh, yeah, other than that, yeah, I, I guess I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> quite the experience. I don't know uh, how, how I'd handle that. That's... That's a man on the move. So, yeah, I mean, from from my understanding, the way I've read the articles, it's uh, you agreed to a bounty of some kind where he's just hunting you for sport, like the most dangerous game. Um, and this has been going on for how long now? Uh, OK, so it's been going on for two years. And oh, basically, wow. Yeah. So here's the thing, man, like. Ryan, you've been there before. I've been there before. We all have, right? There's certain times where you just get hard up for money, right? And, uh, you know, especially, you know, company I was working for got hit hard by the pandemic, you know, right off the bat, you know, first couple of weeks, boom, all of us laid off pretty much. And uh, I was, you know, hard up and, and there was an advertisement that was looking for, uh, you know, I forget exactly how they worded it, but it was something suspicious. And it was like, hey, like, come, you know, get chased around for, uh, you know. Good time. I don't know exactly what it was. Either way, I applied to this ad, and it turned out that yeah, Gary Busey was was uh, hiring people to be uh, to be the most dangerous game of all, man. And so uh, they gave us pistols. Uh, one guy got a shotgun. I was not among them, and uh, let us loose in the streets of Los Angeles. And and here's the thing, dude. It was it was only supposed to be for like a week. the The contract that I signed was for a week. And, and and yet here to this day, it's now been a year and a half, two years later. Uh, he's he's still hunting. The fuck, Gary, fucking Gary, stop it! I told. God oh shit. damn it, Gary, leave me alone! He's fucking firing at me right now. Oh, go wow. away! This is fucking unexpected. go away, Gary. Jesus, fucking this guy, dude! I swear to God, man. So, are you okay? I mean, are you gonna be able to uh, stick with this and? Uh... And do this podcast, or do you need to go? Yeah, yeah. I hired some. I hired some private security. I hear I'm taking care of them right now. And uh, you know, they basically they come in. They we basically sort of tag out. They become decoys. He chases them around for a while, buys them okay. a few hours. Got it. No, that's a great plan. <laughs> I, I feel like you're kind of in your own personal Jumanji right now. This is something. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Busey's Jumanji. Yeah. What's up, guys? Welcome. <laughs> yeah are you ready for a game yeah i, 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 I imagine that's how he talks i mean well, i know that's how he talks because he chased me around yeah that's i, I got nothing <laughs> on that um <laughs> 
Speaking of little... being chased, Ryan, that kind of segues uh, uh, pretty well into our film this week. It totally does. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Speaking I, of cat and mouse uh, situations, <laughs> Jason, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the film we're about to discuss? So, Ryan, we are going to watch a little movie called Duel or Duel, as most people would pronounce it. And this is described by Google as David Mann, played by Dennis Weaver or as some people pronounce it, Dennis, a mild-mannered electronic salesman is driving cross-country on a two-lane highway when he encounters an old oil tanker driven by an unseen driver who seems to enjoy annoying him with dangerous antics on the road. Annoy seems a little soft, by the way. Unable to escape the demonic big rig, David finds himself in a dangerous game of cat and mouse with the monstrous truck. When the pursuit escalates to deadly levels, David must summon his inner warrior and turn the tables on his tormentor. Ryan, what did you think about this movie? Jason, this is usually where I tell you, uh, I'd love to tell you right after this trailer, except there is no trailer, at least not a usable one uh, for podcast reasons. Um, a major- And we're going to talk about this, but a majority of this film was a one-man act, so there's not a lot yeah. of dialogue, a lot of tires screeching and peeling out and suspense stuff. Um, so I could dive right in and let you know I really enjoyed this film. And I will awesome. uh, toss it back to you to get us into the opening of the film. Where we start will always be at the beginning. Jason, yeah, get us absolutely. going. <laughs> so when we open on this film, we start in complete darkness as we hear an engine start. There's some subtly visible motion before the frame illuminates to reveal that we're backing out of a garage. Now, it's a POV shot from the low front end of a car, and as we continue toward the street, we notice ourselves present within a very nice suburban neighborhood on an unusually overcast Los Angeles day. From there, we dissolve to similar shots of what anyone from the area will recognize as downtown Los Angeles, and even though it may be 1971... Not as much has changed as you might expect. Now, further, <laughs> Dude, that is literally the first note I have here is I wonder when L.A. looks new. Uh, has L.A. always looked brown? <laughs> it absolutely has. And Ryan, so further dissolves actually take us through the five past Figueroa and the 134 on the way to the Valencia Santa Clarita area. I know those roads well. Self on route to Lancaster Palmdale. And I believe that's kind of where most of this film takes place. And and yeah, Ryan, I mean, this is areas, you know, both of us, we went to film school in this area. I, I live, I mean, I've the 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 route that, the David takes on the credit sequence is our routes that I've driven literally hundreds of times, right. um, especially where, you know, it breaks off to you either hang that left to stay on the five or you can break right to go to Pasadena. I think it said it was like the 11 or something. And I don't know if that's still the case now or if that's changed because I never remember an 11 being over there. This is not like a name, <laughs> a number I've ever said, like, oh, yeah, hop on the 11. Yeah. Like, what? Uh, but yeah, but the funny thing is that, yeah, it looked brown and arid and dry as hell over there, too, back in 1971. This is 50 years ago. And, you know, a lot of times I'm very, you know, it's easy to get very critical, be like, ah, you know, climate change and the, hey, and then not taking care of stuff and look at all these dead mountains. And it's like, bruh, this shit was dead for a long time. <laughs> but when you live in a desert, what do you expect? I was just thinking of the uh, the the overall pollution uh, level, uh, you know, and just the brownness of this, the road signs. I mean, just like everything just kind of has a certain 
vibe to it in Los Angeles, and I enjoy it. If I got to L.A. and it looked all shiny and pristine, I think I would be disappointed. I'd be like, oh, this right. is in L.A., you know? it's uh, They'd be like doing the same thing in like New York City or whatever. Right, You're like, right. Where's, where's the grime? Where's the dank? I was right. ready for grime and dank. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain amount of authenticity that I need to come along with my Los Angeles. So, uh, But I just figured it was built at some time, and it looked new at some point, and uh, the answer is no. They just designed it this way. <laughs> well, and I think part of it too is because I'm I'm sure Spielberg and and probably his crew and the cinematographer like were pissed that like the day they chose to get get all the exteriors it was freaking overcast all day because <laughs> if you actually look at like the rest of the movie in the mountains like most of it is blue skies yep and so and to be completely honest Ryan like we've alluded to like the fact that like you know I I shot a film during quarantine and stuff and yeah when I did my exteriors totally overcast day it, it just happens sometimes you know yeah. and and what are you going to do you know you that's you're already scheduled for that day you can't really change it so uh Well and let's let's talk about this film for a second um just in the, the setting it all up and kind of the making of story of it all so uh apparently this film was shot in uh, 13 days originally um, they had slated 10 for the film and, uh, and Spielberg went over by three days. So, um, mm. apparently Spielberg was working at the time as an apprentice at universal studios, that apprentice director that was just being given projects, go direct this, go direct that and churning them out, uh, for mm. small, um, little tiny commercials and such. And so, and, and, you know, helping other people. Uh, this came across his desk as a story by Richard Matheson, which I'm sure you're going to love to chime in about. I'll, I'll leave Yay. that fodder for you on the table. But uh, yeah, so he filmed this. Uh, he took this job as a fan of The Twilight Zone and um, and knocked it out in 13 days. That said, this was designed originally as an ABC uh, movie of the week for, uh, for television. So it was a uh, you know, lower budget feature. 450000 is what I found. And um so, yeah, that's why, you know, it, it, you get what you get. If, you, if you're going to shoot your exteriors on a certain day, that's what the weather you're going to deal with. So uh, I'm sure you kind of had similar restrictions on your film as well, where it's like, well, this is the day I'm shooting them. So fuck it. You know, <laughs> this is what it's going to be. You know, I don't have a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of patience. So we're just knocking it out. So uh, anyway, uh, all that said. Um, yeah, this, uh, this Spielberg character is going someplace. I, I have good, uh, <laughs> good vibes about him. Uh, I think he went on to do Jaws after this. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same exact way, man. And so, uh, let's, let's go ahead and let's, let's get started on the film proper. Yeah. We yeah. Can, of course. Uh, discuss along the way here. So, you know, after this opening credit sequence, uh, I had to rewatch it again, again, the first time I was literally just like, I know that I know that too. <laughs> oh, wow. Right. Like, <laughs> um, because yeah. So anyways, when the film starts proper, we've got our protagonist. Uh, his name is David Mann, which I feel like you might as well have just made his first name every. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that was definitely the uh, <laughs> uh, the point there. Insert and, generic you know, name here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's uh, driving, you know, he's scanning the radio stations. And, you know, they do. Uh, they actually do a little, you know, kind of interesting little bit there where they do a little sort of like mini little sketch with the radio guy. Uh, it's very much steeped in sort of a 1971's mindset. It's this guy. I believe it's like a supposed to be like a prank show and he's calling, talking about filling out the census, but he's embarrassed because his wife works as head of household. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah again, probably not going to see that today, but uh, so, yeah, so he's just kind of listening to that for a little bit. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, he gets behind this giant big rig and he's sort of into the, you know, more of the canyons area at this point. And uh, the 
truck's obviously going slow. He decides that he's going to go ahead and uh, pass by it, you know, as we kind of all do. And so there, there's a really sort of nice shot where, you know, he's sitting there. He's continuing to drive after he passes the truck. And all of a sudden, like, the truck just races back by again and overtakes his position uh, just out of nowhere, you know, like really aggressively. And uh, it wasn't like, you know, the David made a particularly dickish move or anything like that uh, to, you know, where he would set the guy off or anything. But uh, either way, this truck obviously does not appreciate that. So then David goes to overtake the car again. And then that's where like the truck like blares its horn. And we obviously know that some shit's about to start. Now, Ryan, there's, there's, there's a couple things that like really jumped out at me at the first sort of sequence. The first dude is like, Fucking awesome dolly shot, dude, to introduce, like, that truck and David's car the way that they're back there. Because it starts – I mean, here's the thing. First of all, these are moving trucks, right? So this is all on, like, a highway. And so we've got, uh, obviously, a moving dolly that's on some sort of vehicle. And it starts from the rear of David's car, uh, you know, goes around the back, careens down the side, continues past. We see the front of the car and then – it introduces us to the side of the big rig and then it yes. continues all the way past the side of that and then cruises around to the front and then finishes in this like nice three quarter profile. And it's just like, I'm not surprised that he went over Spielberg. That is in terms of his shooting days. Cause there are some very, very technical shots in this movie where it's like, Oh, that, I mean that shot alone, Ryan, you know, just the choreography and hitting the marks, you know, from a camera perspective, vehicles, everything, you could easily spend half a day just getting that one shot, you know? So um, let, let's talk about this for a second. So a, a couple of things I learned about the cinematography of this film, um, for starters, they used all the road rigs from bullet apparently, uh, with Steve McQueen, huh. uh, which yeah. as you know, is one of my favorite films of all time. I'm saying that sarcastically, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, they uh, a lot of the following shots. I mean, they had car rigs that they were going around these cars with, and and following and leading the semi. Um, they used certain tricks. Uh, the the bullet rig um, is specifically kept the camera six inches off the ground uh, in one particular ca- uh, rig that they had set up that they had uh, shooting the cars from the ground up was a trick, I guess, that was used on bullet to make them look as though they're going faster. And so, uh-huh. um, and then keeping the background uh, either close or far, you could make cars look like they're going faster or farther away. So Spielberg was trying things right out the gate. Uh, he had something to prove, you know, shoot your shot, as they say. Uh, well, he quite literally shot a shot. The cinematographer <laughs> for this film was a gentleman named Jack Marta. Um, so I went on a big of a, a bit of a deep dive on this guy. He was a TV DP and he worked a lot in films back in the, 30s 40s 50s old guy uh died at 88 in 1991 um so i wanted to see what else this guy shot he shot like batman uh the old adam west series um you know uh hawaii 50 and uh you know emergency and all these uh you know very staple 1970s shows but then you go back to the 40s and 50s And it reminded me of something really interesting. This guy has 224 credits to his name. Um, Wow. This guy, Jack Marta. And uh, you go back and they were cranking out seven, eight movies sometimes a year back in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, you know, you're lucky to get one movie every two or three years today. And it just was kind of an interesting bit of trivia, like to think back of how the Hollywood system worked back then for Westerns and musicals and things like that, where, 
you know, they would hire these people on contract and you're working for Universal Pictures or RKO or, you know, Warner Brothers. <laughs> you're going to go far, kid. And the kid stays in the picture and all that shit. And, um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting that, uh, you know, back then he used to crank out so many films a year. Uh, and this guy was, you know, shooting all that shit. And then he worked with Spielberg to kind of close out his career. So, anyway, a little bit of trivia on that. I thought it was very shot nice very well for being it was oh, for absolutely. being a one man act or a one man show and and just cars and stuff like this should not have been as good of a film as it was. Did you like this film or? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I feel I feel like we'll probably have a pretty similar rating when all is cool. said and done. Um, yeah, and and I think that's sort of, I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Like if you're gonna do a one man show like you're talking about. You're going to have to, especially if it's, you know, you consider that in essence, there's really one primary location, that being the road within these canyons that most of this film takes place on. And then we have, of course, a couple gas stations and a diner that are just brief stops. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you're going to have to shoot the shit out of it to keep things interesting and you're going to have to get a ton of coverage. And uh, especially given the fact that they didn't really have the resources to sort of like up the stakes in terms of what they could do with the road, right? Like right. they didn't have millions of dollars to where it's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to have uh, the road split apart here and it's going to create a giant chasm and he's going right. to have to jump it. Right. And it's like, or oh, there's a, you know, it's by a volcano and uh, Oh, here comes all the lava. Right. And it's a race against time. Like he's like, Nope, dude, you get roads through a Canyon and uh, two vehicles. Uh, he's like, but we do have this very awesome crane, uh, vehicle crane for you. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> now you're speaking my language. I right. was worried, but then you gave me the the vehicle cranes. Cool. We're good, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't, uh, we're not We're not sending Tyrese and Ludacris to space like they did in uh, Fast 9. So, you know, we've only got $450,000 in 13 days. There's only so much. But uh, at the same time, I thought they did a great job, you know, keeping the the uh, antagonist uh, as the truck uh, we never see the driver once other than an arm and yeah. a boot so um you know i, I just well yeah and that's well, there's something kind of interesting there too which is that uh, i thought it was interesting that the film is probably one of the only films i can think of that actually introduces the antagonist in like the first 5 minutes right and not in a, and not in a way where cuz sometimes the movies will do that thing where they have an opening scene that features the bad guy and then we like cut away and then it like cuts to the protagonist and then it takes us usually you know what 20 30 minutes to meet back up with him right but like no this is like we found a way to introduce our protect our antagonist within five minutes and then he's there the entire time through the yes. rest of the, this 90 minute movie and i thought that was fairly interesting the way that it did that effectively it very much adheres to and, and i want to see what you think about this but the one thing that i sort of came away with when all was said and done is i was like the funny thing is you would never really expect it from Spielberg, but like in terms of its cinematic blueprint, this is kind of a slasher film. This is basically like a horror film where there's a a, a nameless, faceless, you know, Michael Myers or, J or Jason from Friday the 13th. And he's just always around waiting around a corner ready to kill you, you know, that and that's what it is. And we don't get kind of like those early Halloween films. You know, there's no backstory. There's no justifying who it is. It's just this faceless, nameless threat that we right. don't know why it wants to kill, but it does. And it's every time the main character turns around. You know, sometimes even in uh, you know, physically impossible ways, right? Like he's behind you and then all of a sudden he's in front. Whoa, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was uh, very, very um, reminiscent of The Twilight Zone and Richard Matheson's work on The Twilight Zone with, you know, because you jump in right away. And so with Twilight Zones being, you know, a, a 30 minute uh, time slot, you didn't have a lot of time to give backstory to why that fucker was on the wing, the little gremlin, you know, like all you yeah. know is Shatner is either losing his mind and hallucinating or there's something out there. And we don't find out until the end, which is which of those two things it is. So um, they kind of throw you right into it. Uh, they never waste a lot of time explaining why these things are happening. Oftentimes in Twilight Zone, uh, you just have to buy in and understand that you're just in you're watching a weird show. And that's just going to be the way it is. So and I thought this was very, very similar to that paired with what you're saying, which is like a, a slasher film or where the, the you have this formidable Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees character that can't be stopped and will always be coming after you light him on fire, poke him in the heart. Doesn't matter. He's coming back. He'll be right there. Uh, to, and, and this uh, truck driver was doing the same shit. Yeah. Now early on, we do get the scene where he pulls David, that is pulls into the gas station and the truck like gets right behind him. And I think that one of the other things the film does well is the way that it, sh uh, you know, you talked about the cinematography, but also from a directorial standpoint, the way that Spielberg chooses to obfuscate and disguise a lot of what's going on. Right. So, and we get some really sort of creative and fun shots like where, David is looking at the truck who's just parked next to him at the gas station and, you know, he's waiting, you know, we see like the arm or whatever it is, but we don't see the guy's face. And then the gas station attendant like comes right into vision and he's like, hey there, bud, let me get your windshield. And he starts like <laughs> right. cleaning and wiping the windshield. And then we sort of see behind him, you know, that the guy's like and then hear it as well through the sound design that the guy's getting out of the truck. Right. And then, you know, cutting to looking at the boots, you know, underneath, you know, uh, the truck and from a, like a sort of tracking profile shot. Right. And again, just constantly alluding to the character, but never really getting a sense of who he is. And again, that's that's very much sort of like a horror uh, conceit, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and then from there, we also learned that David is mm, it would be generous to say he's a meek man. And I thought it was pretty direct how they come out and say that. So, you know, he goes into the gas station and he calls his wife and he's like, hey, can we talk about last night? And she's like, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. And he's like, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry. And he's like, you you should have stood up for me. Uh, you know, Dave was at the party yesterday and and he practically tried to rape me. And I was like, wow, that's 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 a little direct. Jason, uh, I could but. talk for no less than 30 <laughs> minutes about this phone call alone. This phone call, my job was on the floor i was like holy <laughs> fuck <laughs> what is going on she almost got raped at a party and he's like well got that appointment and like who's coming to your <laughs> yeah. parties for one like what is <laughs> cocaine's a hell of a drug let's go there right. <laughs> fucking 1971 was a weird time in the world um and uh you know those glasses uh that he was wearing those yellow sunglasses lent itself well to know what kind of parties he was into uh along with that mustache uh but yeah Fucking weird, man. Weird, weird time. <laughs> he practically tried to rape me in front of everybody. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that was not how I was expecting that to go. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's an accusation. Um, you know, usually when it's like, sorry for the party last night, it's like, ah, he drank too much. I've been there before. Had to yeah. make that apology several times. Feel you, David. And yeah. then it's like, oh, oh, no, I've never let that happen. I, yeah, that's, that's bananas. I, um, yeah. I was not sure how to respond to that. 
Uh, if that was just being thrown around, like, I don't know if that wasn't taken as seriously back then, or she was just trying yeah. to be silly. I mean, we're in a little different times now. Or no, I think it was just a, I think it was just a little clunky. It was just like yeah, it was a little much. Let's let's scale that back next time. That word, uh, yeah, I think holds a little more gravitas these days and, uh, <laughs> than it used to. Maybe uh, so. Uh, you yeah. know, she was saying that some guy was getting a little drunk and handsy with her. I'm assuming, maybe basically, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that whole conversation happens. He leaves the gas station. The truck immediately follows. The truck's fucking with him. He kind of won't let him pass. And then, you know, eventually he finally relents and does wave him past David, that is. And uh, he waves him right into an oncoming truck uh, to which David has to, you know, careen back into the lane behind him. And now we know like, oh, okay, you know, he's. He's really trying to kill this dude. Like, he's not really just kind of fucking with them. Like, he's actually, like, trying to do some damage to this David guy for, uh, again, unknown reasons. It was a, a very reasonable pass that any of us would have made in that situation. So, you know, whether he's just a crazed guy. Uh, I Here's the thing, though. Because it's Lancaster Bakerfield and given the behavior, strongly suspect that methamphetamines are involved. Strongly. <laughs> I mean, again, the... Uh between the truck driver and, and uh, you know, Dennis Weaver's sunglasses, I, I definitely uh, kind of agree. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, like he finds himself at a uh, well. OK, so well, so he finally does. He kind of sort of like careens past him and then we get this sort of brief little chase and he's racing through and the trucks surprisingly fast as it's chasing him through the hills. And then he ends up crashing into a fence on like this very sort of small town, right? Even down to like the sort of like two old farmers are like, oh, it looks like a crash there. Are you okay there? <laughs> right. Like yep. Pepperidge Farms remembers. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Pepperidge Farm guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, he enters the diner. He goes into the bathroom. Uh, we do got to get a weird, I thought there, there was a, a very sort of awkward voiceover that pops up, which gets a little less awkward over, but... Uh, again, he goes into the bathroom and then all of a sudden there's just this voiceover out of nowhere as he's sort of, you know, cleaning up. And it, I, I believe it sort of alludes to him being a vet. He sort of talks about, like, you know, being under duress. And this is like I was back in the jungle and da, right. da, da. Um, so but I mean, that's not really explored other than just that one sort of. It's just line. a typical Matheson descent into madness. You know, it's the again, it's Shatner with the the gremlin on the wing when he's. You know, trying to talk himself down, saying there's nothing out there. Everything's fine. I'm just imagining things. I'm really tired. Can I get a water? You know, and this sort of thing. And uh, in this particular case, it's Dennis Weaver over ordering, by the way, a cheese sandwich. Who orders a fucking cheese sandwich anywhere? That's the that, that order stood out to me. So I need okay, a cheese sandwich. I, I, Swiss. I was going to I was going to I was going to bring this up a little later, but I feel like this is a good time to bring it up. And I'll okay. just come out and ask you, Ryan, what did you think? Uh, okay, well, let me first ask you: What did you think of the of David's character, the character of David Mann as a whole? Just high level response to his character. I thought it was fine. Arc. I thought it was great. Okay. Uh, yeah. Personally, I, I thought that for a be for him carrying the weight of the movie on his shoulders, being the only character that really talks uh, very much, and minus a few cameos by like a waitress asking him what he'll have. Um, I thought that he did a suitable job to keep me into it to show the breakdown um a, a slow descent into madness if you will uh, of the character as he goes through um leading all the way to the very end where you know he's a broken man losing his mind and fighting for his life so i thought he did a suitable yeah. job especially for a tv film you know i thought this was great so here's the thing so i i liked the character and i believe that in a vacuum 
Dennis Weaver gave a, a, a solid performance, but I believe that he was miscast. And here's the thing, Ryan, is most of the time when you become familiar with Richard Matheson's work, like especially okay. on the Twilight Zone, yeah. like 90% of the time his protagonist is Burgess Meredith. And if yeah. it's not Burgess Meredith, it's a Burgess Meredith sort. Okay. And when I considered that in the context of this film, like if Dennis Weaver's character was played by a Burgess Meredith sort who was significantly older but by personality much meeker, I feel like this story plays even better than it does, right? Okay. And then the comment with his wife about being raped is like, it, it, you know, it, it maybe it hits a little bit differently. Because again, like, there is a strength that Dennis Weaver has from the start of this film. And I think that it's ultimately to the, to the detriment of the character's arc, because I really don't feel like he grows that much. Whereas again, if we had had a full, you know... Uh, just just meek milled you know the guy from a christmas carol burgess meredith aw shucks you know uh yep so, you know jack lemon sort right like and that guy turns into you know what he does by the end i feel like that's a, a much more substantial growth of character i'll go so with I, I yeah so again I, I don't think you know i think he gave it his all dennis weaver that is i, I just i again i think it would have played a little bit better with a, a different characterization so but no, anyways. no i agree because he kind of comes off as like a bit of a cowboy type in the in the beginning yeah. of the film you know and he's which wearing those he, he is he's that's them. like <laughs> his entire career has been playing cowboys like he's played them on Gunsmoke and he's played them on all sorts of different shows and right. he was like a. Uh, apparently he was like a big game hunter. He was a big game hunter on that gentle Ben uh, program. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, dude, he does kind of always play these, you know, sort of authority figures. And I think his demeanor reflects that. No. So, you know, whereas if he would have started as more of a, um, you know, weenie of sorts or, or exactly a, a yeah. less than uh, more of an, some kind of wimpy or, guy. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, then, you know, we see that growth as he goes along, and then by the end, you know, he's standing up for himself. So then you get that Crispin Glover end of Back to the Future moment where he knocks yes, Biff out, yeah. and it's like, gotcha, Correct. you know. Um, so, you know, then we see that the three-act structure of the character, whereas this, y you almost have to play him down, you know, and dress him down in the first part if you're going to want him to play that role. But, uh, you know, to me, and maybe I just am not, because we're so far separated from 70s style, so when I see him driving the you know, the, the muscle car, you know, the red sports car of sorts with the big engine and he's wearing the yellow glasses, you know, he's kind of a cowboy Steve McQueen type, you know, that it, yeah. you know, starting off with that, um, in my mind, you know, and then you even have him at one point in the film getting out of his car and going to approach the truck, you know, in the second act. So, um, you know, and the truck kind of drives away and doesn't let him catch him. But, uh, yeah, uh, there isn't as much of a change as maybe there was an opportunity for. So I'll agree with you on that. Yeah, definitely. Now, but there is a really effective scene here as David goes into this diner because he because he comes out of the bathroom and we see that the truck is parked outside. And then we get a dolly shot across all of the people at the bar one of which who we assume is the driver of this truck, though we don't know who it is, and that's where the entertainment the mystery comes from. And it does sort of stop on one character in particular as he's drinking a beer. So, Ryan, what I'll ask you is, do you think that was our guy or not? No, no, we find out it's not our guy, I thought. Well, and not necessarily. Let's go into that here in a minute. So I actually have a clip of this sequence that I'm going to play for you. It's right after. So the guy, you know, who we the, the, the guy that the dolly stops on 
that we think might be the owner of the truck and even kind of caresses it. He's walking does end up getting in a pickup and leaving. Right. Right. Now, from there, David believes that he knows who the other guy is or who it is because there's someone else that he was suspicious of. It was down to like these two guys. And so he goes over and he confronts him. I do have a clip of that that I'm going to play for us right here. I'm calling the police. Police? You think that I won't? You're wrong, mister. You, you, if you think you can take that, that truck of yours and just use it as a murder weapon, just <laughs> killing people on the highway, well, you're wrong. You've got another thing coming. Yeah, you need help. Don't you tell me I need help. All right, Ryan. So here's kind of, I guess, my pitch as to why I believe. So I am of the opinion that that's our man. I think that I think that, first of all, just the the dolly shot communicates that. Right. Just because of the way that it stops on him. And granted, it could just be setting up the fake out that comes right there after. You could argue that for sure. But here's the thing. OK, so this guy gets in a pickup that's behind this truck and he leaves. OK, at, at which point. David confronts the guy in the clip that we just listened to that was eating the sandwich, and it ends up not being him because that guy gets in another truck. Now, after that guy leaves in that truck, all of a sudden, without anybody else in the diner leaving, nobody else in the diner leaves, the truck starts back up, right? Right. Now, either one of two things happened. Either the guy was never in the restaurant to begin with, that's my and it was just a fake out, which, yes, it could be. Or that guy got in the pickup truck, left, but then just, you know, ditched the car, got right back out and got in the truck and then fired it up and left, too. Like it was an intentional fake out. And then he gets in the truck. So you could argue either case. Where do you get the keys to the truck? What do you mean? The first truck there. That he drove away. It was there. He had them. What's to say? What's to say? It wasn't there the whole time. So he. He drove a truck like had to that waiting. diner, parked it, went back and got his semi to go harass Dennis Weaver. Have, dude, have you ever seen any, like, true crime programs at all? <laughs> you think that's, like, the extent of, of, of planning that people have gone through to fuck with people? Oh, man, they get elaborate, bro. Okay. You don't think he found David? <laughs> so, l- l- this is interesting. So, let's unwind this. So, you think that he... Um, it has had been so. You think that the hunting of David Mann was planned, not spontaneous, based on the passing and and the interaction on the road. You think this truck driver had it in for him since day one, and that was all okay. set up? No. So I th- I think that I think that it's very much a it, to kind of keep with the metaphor and analogy. It's very much a serial killer position. So when you watch. Again, any serial killer thing under the sun, but like most recently, like my, um, Manhunter, Mindhunter. Which one was the David Fincher one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Mind, Mind Freak. I no, think I it think was Mind Hunter. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so basically what these guys do is they they set up trap. It's kind of and it's it's very much like hunting for food, right? Like I have a trap set for someone that fits this mold, right? Like sure. doesn't matter who it is. I'm just waiting. It's just it's a spider's web and I'm waiting for any fly to come in, right? And so I think this guy, yeah, I think he's sort of like a serial harasser of vehicles. This is probably I don't think David is the first person he's done this to because again, there's 
there's no reason like David's just a guy who was at the wrong place at the wrong time, I think. But that's not to say that this wasn't a trap set where this guy was waiting for someone and David happened to be that guy. Okay. I'll go along with that. Yeah. I will. I'll go along with you halfway, be, at least, because uh, Spielberg uh, had gone on the record apparently saying that the license plates on the front of the truck were kind of like uh, trophies, like uh, deer heads on the wall, if oh, you will, yeah, for yeah, other yeah. people that he's killed. That, yeah, so, there you go. Plays yeah. right in. There you go. Because he has yeah, like so uh, eight license plates or ten license yeah, plates. Yeah, he does. Like, I wasn't over sure of what that was. I was like. I thought maybe it was like a of an era. I was like, oh, did you have to like register in each state back then? Like, I think that was kind of part of it. What's going on? I think that was that was technically part of it. But I do think oh, okay. that I, I did read that Spielberg had gone on the record saying that he specifically wanted that portrayed in the film, uh, all grimy and everything, as both basically like trophies showing that this had been done before. So he collects those with people that he's killed. Um, this was not a spontaneous event. So I'll go down that road with you that far. Now I will add, and then I'll toss it back to you that, uh, I do like your original analogy where this is an ambiguous killer. So to say that they, the face was shown, um, is like saying that Michael Myers face was shown under the mask. You know, some of these things are just better unseen and, uh, and, and left, to your own imagination. So if we saw, and you know, furthermore, that Larry Hagman looking character that looked like Jr. from Dallas, um, just looked, looked a little too pretty to be driving a truck of that caliber and like being a serial killer of sorts. I, I like to picture him, you know, more haggard and toothless and kind of, uh, little, so this truck, I mean, it's dirty and grimy and, uh, supposedly it's the, um, uh, kind of the inspiration for the truck in Jeepers Creepers, if you ever saw that film. So um, if, oh. you, if, if you haven't seen Duel and you're listening to this, but you've seen Jeepers Creepers, just kind of picture it like that. Just super dirty and grimy and ready. Yeah, to definitely. Okay, well, well, I want to come back to that because it the one the one film it actually did remind me of was um, Fury Road. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute, though, because the one sure. thing that I do want to say, and I believe I believe you've you've used this to kind of sort of like help break down certain puzzles in the past, like with Under the Skin, et cetera, which is uh, the credits and what the credits can sometimes tell us about who characters will be. Okay. Um, there isn't there's an actual credit in the credits for Duel, like on IMDb right now for the truck driver. And it's played by a Carrie Lofton, and it shows his face, and it looks an awful lot like the guy that's drinking that beer. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, so, Carrie but, Lofton but, did drive the truck. I do know that he was a stunt driver um, in, in researching this film, and, uh, you know, yeah. he was kind but of the, a, the other thing to remember, too, though, is also, like, this is the early 70s of Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, the, the, the level of diversity among the players and cast and crew is not quite what it is today. So to be completely honest, man, there's a lot of fuckers that look like Carrie Lofton in this movie. There are. Uh, so, you know, that that's sounds not about to white, say Jason. that. That sounds about white. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's not to say that it was specifically him uh, just, you know, because he I don't like think it was. Picture, I'm looking but... at photos right now and I don't think it was. I think that guy yeah. that was in the diner. um Looked like uh, looked like Jr. from Dallas. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So obviously, you know, that's uh, one of those little things that's up for debate and stuff like that's fun, man. I mean, it gives us you know five minutes here to bullshit about things like that. Sure. On a fun little program here. So the next scene that we get is you know all of that ends up uh, 
you know, the whole thing happens and then David goes to leave when the truck, uh, there's actually a very nice shot. Actually. It's when the truck is leaving and, uh, David goes to run after him and Spielberg, I think does for the first time, something that he does in a lot of his films, which is that like side profile run shot, you know? Uh, I, I feel like I've seen that in a lot of his movies and, and, uh, but it's just, it was, it was, again, it was kind of fun to see a lot of these little sort of signature techniques of him, like he just was start to be played swinging with. for the fences on this one. There was a couple he of really runners. was, dude. He wanted yeah. to impress the hell out of people. You can tell. Yeah. Um, you know, for such <laughs> a simple did. script, he, he shot his shot and, um, yeah. cause you know, uh, this script might've been. 30 pages, if that, you know, I mean, because right. how long does it take, short you know, story. man drives, man follows truck, truck, you know, passes <laughs> his car. Uh, this script had left a lot to the, uh, you know, to, to the director to kind of fill in the gaps if you're going to make a feature out of it and not just, again, a, t- a 20 minute episode of Twilight Zone. So, uh, yeah, he did yeah. a great job. Uh, I, I, again, that Spielberg kid's going somewhere. Uh, I can't wait to see what he makes next. <laughs> and then again, I really feel like, and again, this is totally the Richard Matheson influence, but, you know, you really do see a lot of traditional horror slasher techniques, e- even down to the storytelling, right? So right. there's always the moment where, you know, the 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 protagonist in, in the slasher movie has now been chased for a couple times, and there's the thing where she's being chased, and then she runs into, like, a friend or someone she knows, and then, like, she's like, oh my god, I'm being chased. They're like, what? What's wrong? And he's like, he's right there. And they're like, who? And he's like, but... Oh, I swear they were just right behind me. Okay, sweetie, okay. Right? <laughs> right. It's in every slasher movie, right? And we basically get that beat in this film with the school bus, right? That's like the whole thing with the school bus. So this, you know, he's driving, David, that is. This school bus is stranded. The The school bus, which, by the way, dude, that school bus should know that that car is not going to do shit to help them out of their situation. Man, I know. Like, it's like, I mean, the two of them might as well have put shoulders into it. I feel like they would have had a better choice uh, than, you know, getting some dinky little sedan to push an entire school so bus. So there's, full there's of a children. school bus on the side of the road that's broken down and he needs a push. And he's um, asked our lead, David Mann, to pull his uh, his old Plymouth up to uh, to this to the rear end of this school bus, his old car back to the rear end of the school bus and give him a push to get a jump start. And, um, our truck, um, you know, he's like, what about that truck that went past here? And, uh, again, the school bus driver doesn't notice the truck shows up through a tunnel that's on the kind of out in our purview off to the side around the bend. And, um, you just see the light at the end of the tunnel, all of a sudden silhouetted with the the front end of that truck. And I thought that was was such a cool, yeah, yeah. Really cool shot that the whole thing kind of played out. And how about all those shit kids that just like ran up and jumped on his car out of nowhere. Like I thought people yeah, were well behaved right? in the seventies. I, I guess not. <laughs> Rose colored glasses, my friend. I'm always saying this. Everyone's like, ah, things were so great back then. It's like, when I, I was a kid. You, if you right. go back then, it wasn't as great as you remember. Fucking kids. <laughs> and it's always like, oh yeah, but uh, you know, I could, uh, I could drive a car without wearing a seatbelt. It's like, really? That's, that's what you miss. That's what yeah. you miss is driving without seatbelts, bro. Come on. Well, I mean, in all fairness, I wouldn't have been the least bit surprised to see one of those kids light up a cigarette back then in 1971. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mister. <laughs> got a light? <laughs> but it's the 70s, so the chick's like, hey, mister, got a light? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm going to find a way to bring that voice in every single episode. I think I've hit it the last three episodes, and I'm going to keep it going. On a roll. On a roll. <laughs> you should do the same with uh, old boy Stewie G. <laughs> that bus is horny. That bus is so horny. Well, it did go in the tunnel. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so yeah, so yeah, he kind of gets behind them, and then of course the truck gets or the vehicle gets stuck, like they thought it was, and. Guy tries to get it unstuck, does it the last minute. The bus is approaching. He's like, kids, you got to get out. The bus is coming. And they're like, what? And then what does the bus do? It helps. It gives them a little push that this little sedan couldn't. So once again, you know, it's that like, uh, you know, main characters being fucked with and, you know, the antagonist trying to convince everyone else that they're just seeing things or they're crazy or whatever. Not such a bad guy. It's uh, it's sort of like uh, the original gaslighting, if you will, dude. Sure. I don't know what this guy's talking about. I'm not chasing him. I'm just over here helping school buses. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doing my civic duty, sir or madam. Like, if, you know, Freddy Krueger, what? Well, I was just, you know, helping these four <laughs> camping kids. Everything's fine. Mind your business. I'm just, I'm just trying to help control the pet population. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we also, one of the things that, you know, jumps right out of the gate, because, dude, Spielberg's in his early 20s at this point, right? And just his inherent understanding of filmmaking is really impressive. So even the way that he slows things down with, like, editing and sound design, for example, um, you know, we haven't really talked about the way that, you know, the editing will speed up during those tense moments. And then we get moments like this where, you know, it kind of slows down. Now it's like this whole thing just happened. David finds himself once again behind the truck and the truck's just moving as slow as possible, just daring David to overtake it. And David won't take the bait. So he just sort of stays behind going 15, 20 miles an hour, whatever. And again, you know, we we don't really hear too much of the sound. You know, Spielberg lets the birds chirp. We kind of hear a little bit more silence than usual. But uh, eventually they do find another gas station. And uh, this is a, a little bit of an eccentric gas station. It's got a, in addition to sort of uh, interestingly charactered old woman or middle-aged woman anyways. Uh, there's like snakes and chickens there and there's a phone booth. Like it seems like a tweaker gas station to be sure. Now, David's going to use the phone because he wants to call the police about this truck that's terrorizing him. Uh, but the truck is uh, going to wisen up to what David's doing and go ahead and uh, put a stop to that before it begins. I do have a clip of this that we're going to listen to right now. What's your name, sir? David Mann. How do you spell that, please? M-A-N-N. That's two N's. I'd like to report a truck driver that's been endangering my life. So the truck just like smashes the entire place up. David peels out in his car, ends up hiding next to these train tracks, hides effectively as the truck passes him, and then he falls asleep. And there's a nice reveal when he's sort of woken up by a passing train that kind of sounds like this giant truck that's been chasing us for the movie until this point. Right. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a nice little fake out moment there. David feels the same way, right? He's, he, you know, wakens with a startle, then realizes it's just a train and it's kind of like, ah, you know, has his little like, you know, chuckle to himself moment, right? Ah, it's not going to be so bad. We might have survived this thing after all. <laughs> ah, David, you should know better. You should know by now. That's not how these movies work, man. So, uh, you know, he cruises up a little bit uh, up the mountain and lo and behold, uh, the truck is up there uh, just waiting for him, you know, kind of on the side of the road. And he's going to pull out, you know, to block the to block David from being able to go up the road and just kind of fuck with them by going back and forth that way. And 
this is where this is pretty much the only time actually well it's the second time so there's two instances where the truck driver actually does threaten the lives of someone other than david and that would be what we just heard which is at the second gas station uh, where he's, he's he's going in the circles and then right here where he ends up smashing into an old couple and uh, by the way, Ryan, uh, I don't know if uh, I, th- I don't know if if at the time Lancaster was famous for uh, just you know, having a very strong elderly population because everybody other than David in this movie is like seventy two, <laughs> like these like elderly communes almost. Yeah, um, no idea. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, the, you know the uh, the diner is the exception there. But I would argue that most of those people are just passing through. Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder if it wasn't, again, to play against Dennis Weaver and make him look maybe a little more younger and timid or, you know, um, a little more inexperienced or out of his element with older people to contrast. Like, where are you going, kid? I don't know. You I know, think it goes the things? opposite, though. If, oh, you're, okay. if, if that's the whole point, because then, because, yeah, if you want to make someone, if you want to make a 50-year-old dude look strong, you put him a bun- around a bunch of 80-year-olds. And if you want to make him look weak, you put him around a bunch of, like, 25-year-olds, right? Okay, that's so, fair. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, uh, look, maybe they were just cheaper at the end of the day, dude. <laughs> hey, yep. they worked for scale. What do you, what can I say? Or dime a dozen. You no, know, there yep. was, uh, there was some sort of, uh, you know, social initiative at the time where it's like, Hey, let's, uh, let's help, you know, elderly people get more cinema roles. Like we're giving tax breaks. <laughs> <laughs> making a quota, making a quota. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I will um, say, so. <laughs> uh, I want to go back and add something to what you were talking about earlier too, which is the sound design for this film. I thought yeah. there was a lot of heavy lifting, uh, with the suspense and whatnot, whether it's the engines revving up, uh, but also the lack of sound. Like I found on my copy when I would uh, watch this, that a lot of the dialogue would kind of like fall off and dwindle. So now I'm like really yeah. paying attention or even turning up the volume. I found myself turning up the volume a couple of times and then all of a sudden, oh, interesting. Burr, burr, and I'm like, Oh yeah. shit, it would scare <laughs> the crap out of me. Cause I was not prepared for that. And I think uh, I, I want to say that I have to believe that that must've been intentional to sure. make the audience kind of like lean in, you know, to the situation. Like, what is he saying? Is this pertinent? And it wasn't pertinent. Yeah. The whole thing is just a bait, you know, to, for you to take to lean in so that when the jump scare happens, it scares the shit out of you. And it worked. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting to that point. So, again, you know, we try to consider, you know, the historical aspect of these films. Right. So sure. think think about it. This is a this is a movie that was knowingly made for television. Yes. In the early 70s. The people had sound coming from a shitty little 24 inch tube, right? Nobody had sound systems. Nobody had 5.1. Nobody even had sound bars, right? So maybe there's an element of it's like, hey, we got to really jack up the sound, you know, to, for it to have the effect we want because we know where how people are going to be watching it. You think there yeah. might have something there? It could be, could be. Yeah, I it's mean, always hard uh, to say. Remote controls were probably on the uh, cutting edge at this point, if even available i want to say so um oh, i know but you don't like want people riding their remotes like i hate having to ride my remote no no, no. I, i'm scene, going turn with, it down dialogue turn it up it's like just the opposite i'm going with your plan which is uh basically again you know make people lean in and listen uh you know the it's not like they can be throttling their volume like i was so uh and yeah. adapting to the situation you're stuck with it you got to crank it up and be scared or or uh or not but uh, yeah, I just thought that they, they, the use of sound design in general, um, again, not having very much to go with. This film this film should not have worked. 
Um, totally. You know, <laughs> in the hands of a you know less capable filmmaker or a less ambitious filmmaker, this would have been a very very boring film. Um, yep. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to shoot the shit out of it, dude. You have to like have so much coverage on it, right? Because again, that's how you keep it interesting is by just keeping the visual language varied, you know, and and keeping, uh, you know, constantly changing the perspective and giving us like new ways to look at this thing that we've been watching for fucking seventy five minutes at this point, you know, dude. I mean. Uh, imagine being the fucking editor and then getting this pile of footage of just a truck driving <laughs> around the five or whatever it was. over and over again. Yeah. Like the same two trucks from like an infinite number of angles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, strip away all the music and the, and the sound design and all of that. And just, you got two cars driving around with stunt drivers, you know, for countless shots. And it's like, okay, put this one here, put this one there. And, you know, gradually you start to fill it in and build tension with the music and the act and Dennis Weaver's monologue in his head and all of that. But uh, in the raw form of it, when you just look at these clips, this movie should not have worked. I would have been pissed if I was an editor to look at Like, what do you want me to do with all this? You give me 45 minutes of, uh, you know, this red car just driving through Lancaster, California. Cool. And then furthermore, um, let's also add that the, the background to this film as beautiful as California can be, it could also be very monotonous. It's just golden yes. weeds everywhere with some oak trees on some mountains. And I love it. I think it's gorgeous rolling hills and all of that. But one shot doesn't look any different than the next. So, Correct. again, as an editor, to try to, like, show a progression of story or, or to build tension, um, you don't even have, like, day turning to night or anything like that. He takes a full-on yeah. nap and, like... By the end of the film, he's still smack dab in the middle of the day, which <laughs> I thought was a good choice. I mean, I thought it made it look kind of like hot and desolate and um, hopeless. Uh, and it, it kind of showcased what Central well, yeah. California kind of looks like. So let's also consider the logistical implications of, you know, doing a bunch of stunts in a car in right. windy hills right. in the middle of the night. Right. Like that's not that's not smart. <laughs> you don't do as, as it was you find you a way to shoot it during the day. As it was, he said he chose uh, the red car because it stood out against the background of yellow and green, oh, yeah. you know, because it was I on sh- the other side of the color wheel. So um, you see that, you know, in the in extreme wide shots of the highway to show how in the middle of nowhere he is, uh, yeah. you, know, you see the red car against that background. I thought those were all interesting choices he was making as a first time director. Yeah. And the funny thing about it is to this day, that's still the middle of nowhere. It's yeah. like the last middle of nowhere in Los Angeles area proper. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's just, yeah, it's far away enough from the city. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyways, um, dude, I mean, from Los Angeles until you get uh, Jesus, man, I've made that drive uh, so many <laughs> times, dude. And like even going up the five up the heartland um, all the way to Highway 46 and cutting over. I grew up in Paso Rubble, San Luis Obispo, California, uh, which cool. is on the coast over, um, you know, south of Monterey and Big Sur. But people don't realize, dude, like so much of California looks like this. And, um, you know, we all picture Los Angeles, San Diego, the beaches, San Francisco. Uh, But, you know, that is such a small portion of California. Um, And 90 percent of it looks more like this (laughs) in the middle. of Correct. Yeah. Most of it. Most of California is not a coastal area. Right. There's a coast that runs along and then there's the rest of the 90 percent of the state, to your point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you put it on a map, I think it goes from, like, Vermont to Florida on the East Coast. Like, it covers a big swath. So, uh, yeah, anyway, def- just thought I'd definitely. that up. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, man. 
And uh, also, by the way, just because I, I have to point it out, man, did you notice in that scene that we just heard the, the clip of a few minutes ago, uh, did you notice when he gets into the phone booth, did you see our boy Spielberg in the reflection at the bottom right? No, I read about it in the <laughs> trivia afterwards. I totally missed it. I guess, uh, yeah. Yeah. I- I do, I, it's like you're like, I'm pretty sure it's him. It also could be another like long haired intern, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's our boy Spielberg. Yeah, and, I missed uh, it. That yeah. was a bummer. I wanted to see it. <laughs> so, but yeah, he's, he's so, I mean, even just in the reflection, you can tell he's just like a little baby boy out there. Yeah, I was wondering in the scheme of things, in the film history uh, multiverse, in the cinematic multiverse, um, <laughs> if this was before or during his little fraternity that he had with Lucas and De Palma and, um, you know, uh, and Coppola and, uh, you know, all those dudes that were all kind of hanging together and helping each other out on each other's films. I don't know if you knew this, but they were all, yeah. I think uh, John Carpenter was in there too. Cause it was the whole, it was the USC crowd. Okay. Like yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. So it was a tight knit crowd plus Spielberg who wasn't uh, allowed into college. So <laughs> yeah. Of all the people. Right. So um, anyway, yeah, well, they made up for it later. They gave him an honorary. He did. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd say you've earned it. But uh, yeah, I just, um, I, I was wondering if, you know, he was going back and watching dailies with those guys or if this was before that or, or how that all played out in the, in the timeline of things. Yeah. Honestly, dude, that I'll bet you that was one of those things where they were all like super happy for each other, but also like just so unbelievably jealous. <laughs> hey, that's great, Steven. It's your fourth film. I'm just trying to eat ramen over here. Well, I mean, Coppola made Godfather in 72. This was 71 and he was making a TV movie. So um, I forget when American Graffiti was made. That was in the early 70s because Star Wars came out in 77. So he would have started that in 75. So American Graffiti must have been around 73 or so, if I'm not mistaken. So this was all around that time. So they probably were hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. George Lucas was about to lose a bunch of money on THX 1132. Well, he did uh, American Graffiti, and that was, uh, you know, Harrison Ford's first film and, and all of that. So, um, right. you know, he was rolling off I've still of never seen that movie. Cinematic Confession. You know, I haven't either. Fuck it. <laughs> I've <laughs> seen great. Happy Days. Yeah. Uh, I, I get the gist. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure I know what happens from there. Yeah. Feel the same yeah. way about, uh, yeah, yeah. Feel the same way about, like, Mystic Pizza and, like, the, you know, all those uh, Brat Pack films. It's like, I, I get know. the gist. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amelia Westerfuss and Julia Roberts act cute. I've got the gist. Let's let's move along. Yes. Moving on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Man kicks jukebox in leather jacket. Got American Pizza. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> Uh, the one the one thing I will say about the score is I don't know if you felt the same way at times, but I kind of got like Danny Elfman vibes at times just with like the stabbing violins. It reminded me very, very much of like a uh, Beetlejuice beats uh, in the bit. score. It's kind of yeah. interesting. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, and again, I, that guy, uh, all these guys, his entire crew that I could that I looked up, at least most of them um, were all TV guys. This was a TV movie. This was a made-for-TV yeah. film. That is so important to point out because we're approaching this as like Steven Spielberg's first feature film and the opening to his career. But at the time, <laughs> it was like ABC's Movie of the Week. And it was like yeah. so low budget. And, um, you know, all the guys and the crew that he had to work with, I-, I wonder how much guff he had because he was swinging for the fences. And he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the car rig from fucking Bullet. And it was like, easy, kid, easy. I make seven yeah. of these a week, you know? Uh, <laughs> They're like, look, we're just doing this to appease the Ovaltine people, okay? Right, I'm on a salary. I'm just trying to get my pension, you know? And 
and uh, and he's like, no, no, he has this big grand vision for this TV movie of the week. I'm, dude, I would be the same fucking way though, dude. If you gave me something that you didn't give a shit about, but I got to like make a movie, and you gave me like what's the equivalent of probably two million dollars these days, like, right. oh man, I would go fucking nuts on that shit, dude. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 you guys take care of the sponsors. I got this. <laughs> It, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. It's mom's spaghetti. <laughs> Steven Spielberg, 1971 duel. <laughs> Absolutely. So Ryan, right about here, we actually do get to the climax. And uh, I will say this about the climax is I feel like at this point, um, if there's anything that was underwhelming about the film, it was the climax. And it was just simply because he used up all his tricks by that point. You right. know what I mean? Like, I would agree. They, 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 they <laughs> he, she admirably tries in one scene to like put some, like, I don't know what it was like little bushes in the middle of the road for him to like sort of slalom around, but the car just drives over him. And I'm glad that they didn't try to do more shit like that. Cause it's just like, yeah, dude, you know, like you just, you don't have much to work with here. It's cool. Just You're out of shit. Right. It, it here. <laughs> <laughs> but there is kind of a nice little moment where, you know, they get to the uh, uphill. It's a significant uphill grade that both of them reach. And obviously the giant big rig is going to slow down considerably. So it looks like David and his sedan is going to make it. But then wouldn't you know the damn radiator hose. The goddamn <laughs> radiator hoses. That we're we didn't mention like on the six program. times throughout this film. <laughs> but yeah, each time he stops off at a gas station, the guy's like, I don't know about these radiator hoses. And then the next one, they're like, hey, uh, can you look at take a look at the radiator hose there? And like, yeah. Shout, so, uh, by the way, real quick shout out to full serve gas stations. Uh, right? That was pretty. That's always cool to see in a film. Uh, hey, well, I'm going to top it off for you, mister. Yeah, put some, <laughs> put some ethyl in it. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> so fucking weird. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, so they proceed to engage in the world's slowest car chase as they're both sort of, you know, going uphill, smoke's blaring out of the different engines. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so so, so eventually the, the sedan sort of just, you know, crawl, uh, slows to a crawl, stops, craps out. And then, you know, he, he sort of turns it around and he decides like, OK, you know what? We got enough in here for one last uh, classic game of chicken. Right. So he turns the old gas. Uh, he turns the old car around. And as they're staring at each other, David just gasses it. And so then the truck gasses it as well. But then David basically takes his briefcase and he does the old, you know, lodge it uh, at the gas pedal, you know, between the seat and the gas pedal and fly out of the car. Right. Just jump the hell out of it. Uh, The car speeds forward, ends up hitting the truck. Truck slams into it and just keeps going forward. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess he doesn't know that David's not in it anymore because he's just kind of having a good time driving it around. And then, oh, shit, last minute, far too late, notices that he's about to go over a cliff and uh, slams on the old brakes there. But it's far too late. And the truck goes careening over the edge of this cliff in Classic. a very cool shot, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't. Uh, this is actually the one time where Spielberg just lets, you know, a solid 60 to 75 second shot play out where they sort of track the truck falling in slow-mo, which, by the way, dude, anytime I see shots like that, especially back in the day knowing, it's like I always think of uh, the Radioactive Man movie from The Simpsons <laughs> where they're like, OK, guys, this shot has a, cost a million dollars and we only have time to do it once because we're actually going to blow this thing up, right? And I don't know because here's the thing. I really hope that Spielberg had some backup cameras running elsewhere and just made a creative decision to go with the one tracking shot because like, it because it, it worked or, you know, pan tilt, whatever. But, like, 
yeah, dude, uh, pretty ballsy because that that truck actually crashes and you're not getting that take again because that thing is demolished by the end of that shot. Do you think that was a miniature? I don't know. I do not oh, okay. think it was. Got I it. think that's where I think that's where half of their four hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget went. <laughs> <laughs> Demolition and cleanup. Love it. Yeah, kind of like uh, what was it in uh, Apocalypse Now? Right, like there's the famous footage that they show in the Redux at the end credits of them like blowing up the plantation compound or oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah, and it's just like well, we, in the morning. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like well, the film is finished. Like, it's done. Like, we don't have any more use for this thing because it's shot to shit. Like, may as well just record, you know, its final days and blowing the hell out of it. <laughs> Let it rip. Yeah, right. No, we'll, we'll, I hope we'll you're find right. find someplace to use it. I really hope you're right. I hope they blew that truck up full size, full scale. Just <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, and then, you know, the, the Spielberg is not here to waste any of our time with a bunch of uh, denouement, as the French like to say. Uh, pretty much the MC survives MC being main character for those who aren't hip to the lingo. And, uh, he's, you know, sitting there, he's crying and he's just sort of throwing rocks up against a red background. Obviously, you know, a little PTSD from this very intense situation and, uh, the credits roll and that's kind of it. You know, it's just this story about it, literally a guy being chased by a truck and he manages to survive and what comes after or what came before is really of little consequence. Right. And that's dual. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, man. So, right, really had a good time. Again, especially, you know, all things considered, you know, modest budget, made for TV movie, Young Cat's first film. Really, really succeeded much more than it had any business doing so. And we seem to both be in agreement there. So, Ryan, as we do here, we're going to wrap this up with our three adjectives. I let you go first. What you got? These are pretty easy, and I'm sure we're going to be on the same uh, same boat here. Uh, simple but effective. Little hyphenated one there um, for all the reasons we mentioned. I thought that uh, you know being a one character film. I mean two if you count the truck. Uh, by the way, I did kind of picture that truck driver to be. Uh, did you ever watch the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, the original one with no, David Hasselhoff? Okay. No. Uh, well, for our listeners out there that have seen the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, I did picture it to be. Uh, the bounty, which hunter. I'll bet you is a lot. I feel like our listener base is like strong SpongeBob SquarePants vibes. I hope you're right. I am. I love SpongeBob. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, I thought that it was the bounty hunter from SpongeBob SquarePants with the boots and all of that. And bigger boot came in, killed him. Uh, that's how I envisioned all this. Simple but effective was my first. The second was nostalgic. Again, I'm a big Twilight Zone guy. I love Twilight Zone. Always have. Um, it's some of my earliest memories. With my father, we're watching the Twilight Zone Marathon uh, on television on Thanksgiving before it was available yeah. to stream, obviously, and all of that. I used to tape it on video cassette so I could rewatch it. Hey, Dad, want to watch Twilight Zone? All right, son, put it in. Um, and uh, preliminary, because uh, we're pre-gaming it here for Spielberg's best work. Uh, coming very, very hot on the heels of this film with Jaws and E.T. and Close Encounters all the way up through the 80s, and then he gets into producing with Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and Goonies and all the uh, great stuff that got us into films, and uh, this is where it all started. So uh, this was our pregame. This was our uh, shower beer at 8.30 in the morning to get us ramped and ready for uh, classic Spielberg. Jason, how about you, buddy? <laughs> well put, man. Well put. Yeah, my first that I have is Economical. Like we said, you know, just does a really good job of maximizing the few resources that it has sure. and making it seem a lot bigger. Like this is one of those films that before you know how much it costs, you assume that it costs more than it did. 
You right. know what I mean? And that's always, I mean, that's, you know, bravo, job well done. You you know, you checked off all the boxes. Like if you can if you can do that, then, you know, production, cinematography, direction, like you all nailed that, you know, and performance as well, because typically underfunded productions don't well, have great it- acting. And on that same token, just real quick, I would chime in and say, if you hadn't told me this was a made-for-TV movie, I would have thought this was a straight-ahead feature film. It's almost like uh, it's almost like the filmmakers got a real eye for uh, for movies. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. Save some budget like on the meat the from that places. cheese sandwich. Reapplied towards car rig. Uh, to <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. The second is stylistic. You know, again, in keeping just with the, it doesn't feel like it. It's a cheap movie. You know, and hey, it's funny too because Ryan. Uh, I mean, I guess so. This could be considered something of a cinematic confession. I'm bringing it up because of. The USC connections we just discussed. Uh, I don't find John Carpenter to be a good filmmaker. I, know. I just don't. We've talked I don't about think, this. Uh, some of his movies work. A lot of them don't. But the one thing that we that if you really if you're looking at them objectively, he's the laziest fucking filmmaker, dude. It just I feel like I, I don't even know how he got into it because everything he makes just feels passionless because. Absolutely every scene, every every scene is covered with a single wide shot. No, nah, no, nah, we don't need a bunch of coverage. You guys just stand there, and I'll put the camera back here. <laughs> uh, at least with his actors. But then he's like prosthetics, dog exploding. Let's get the fuck in there with that camera, which I can get behind. <laughs> I just wish he would treat the rest of the film with the same respect. So uh, again, John Carpenter's Duel is a shit movie. One hundred percent. You give John Carpenter the same resources, and it's you know again, it's a bunch of wide shots of fucking cars going twenty five. And again, Spielberg just you could really tell he he dressed to impress on this one, and it comes through with the level of style. Third hyphenated, engaging as hell, man. This is not a film. Where, you know, like we talked about <laughs> earlier in the season, Tucker and Dale, right? Where <laughs> 30 minutes in, we were like ready, like thinking it was about to be over. Um, yeah, you know, this is this is this is a brisk 90 minutes. It feels like a brisk 90 minutes. Um, and, you know, you're with it the whole step of the way. It doesn't waste its time trying to, you know, ham fist a bunch of different plot lines that don't work and get them in there just for the sake of doing so doesn't try to get some sort of love interest right because ah we got to get the love interest in there like no it tells its story and it tells it well it is economical and mean i love it there you go economical stylistic engaging as hell ryan a grade rating formalize it what you got I will, but first I need to t- chime in and say, uh, for the record, real quick, um, uh, apparently Jason and I are the only two people that hated Dale and T- or Tucker and Dale versus Very Evil. much so, yes. I have never had so much hate mail in my inbox as I did from <laughs> not giving that movie its due. Um, I don't know if maybe I was just in a bad mood when I watched it. I'm pretty sure I gave it a fair shake, but uh, so I don't know what people really dug about that movie. I have friends that follow us on Instagram or Twitter that don't really necessarily listen to every episode. But when they saw, we watched that, uh, and saw our quotes from it, uh, reached out to me angry, like visibly angry <laughs> about this film. So, uh, to our listeners, I am so sorry if you like that film, uh, but it's it a shit movie and fuck you. So anyways, uh, I give this movie, <laughs> I give this movie a B. 
How about you, Jason? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there. I gave it a four and a quarter out of five stars, man. I really dug it. And uh, again, you know, just that extra quarter star because A, limited budget, and B, just the chutzpah of this young 20-something-year-old getting out there and sure. showing people how it's done. So, See, I went the other way with it, and I kind of deducted the B, the B plus because uh, just because I knew what was coming and and how his where I would put all his other films and it's like, well, I'm just gonna have to. I mean, granted, it's a B, it's a strong B film and he cranked yeah. it out for what it was, but uh, you know every other film he's made is A and then so or A plus or A minus. So you're gonna like put this right on the heels of. E.T. or or Schindler's List or Jurassic Park? Nah, probably not. So we'll back it off of Skosh. It's a solid B film. And I think Spielberg would agree with me. If you're out there and you're listening, Spiels, listen, uh, reach out to us. <laughs> Let us know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. I'm going to wait for that call from Mr. Steven. And... Yeah, g- give us the spiel, if you will. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to love it. Well, guys, it's that time to go ahead and wrap things up here. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, of course, a couple things. Uh, you can reach out to us on the old socials. We've got the Esoterica Cinema on Twitter as well as Instagram. You can, of course, send us any and all muffin-related correspondence to our email. That's esotericacinema at gmail.com. You can also let us know if you like the show or if you want to throw some uh, make some suggestions for Season 3 films. And then as for myself, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Jason Aberrant. That's one B and two R's. And Ryan, where can people find you? I am the Ryan Siebold on Twitter or Ryan underscore Siebold on Instagram. Uh, and I tag Jason and I both on the uh, posts that we do um, on Instagram. And Jason handles the Twitter and does the same. So you can just find us and jump leapfrog into our personals if you want to reach out. Absolutely. And then you can check out our website. A lot of fun content on there gives you some different ways to listen to the program. You can check out the animatic, which if you haven't yet, you really should. It's a great time. And then, of course, the master list, the master list of films that we choose all of our films at the end of the episode from. And in keeping with that, we're going to go ahead and select our next film. So. Uh, of course, as a dedicated listener of the program, you have already downloaded that list, so you can go ahead and bust that guy out right now. Anyone else? Get to that website. Check it out. We're going to go to random.org, true random number generator, and we are going to select our next film. So numbers one through 200. Ryan, I'm surprised that we have actually haven't had any like uh, sort of duplicates at all before. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyways, we're going to come up here. We're going to push generate and we get number 155, 155. So for those playing at home, go ahead and check out 155. If you got your list, you already know what it is for everyone who doesn't. You would know by now if you had it. Ryan, I am coming and I'm going, okay, it's not 154. It's not 156. It's 155, Ryan. This is a movie I have seen once and fucking adored it. And I cannot wait to watch it again. A little movie called The Last Detail. Have you seen this one? I have, Jason. Uh, same. Uh, I have watched this one time a long time ago and loved it. This is um, this is when Jack Nicholson was becoming Jack Nicholson. This is a Hal Ashby yeah. film from 73. Um, and uh, is this where he orders the fucking tuna sandwich? 
from the diner? No, no, no. So that's five easy pieces. This is that's uh, five this, easy so, pieces. Okay. Yeah, no. The the famous one from this one is Shore Patrol. I am the Shore Patrol, motherfucker. That's right. I am the Shore Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> Which is literally an all time classic best line. I fucking like. I say that line to myself in my head quite often. <laughs> So a funny little piece of trivia. I used that line, a variation thereof, uh, very recently or over the summer during the Stanley Cup finals. I was trying to uh, cover the uh, lightning. I live in Tampa Bay and we were covering the Tampa Bay lightning. And uh, the lady said, I can't park there. Uh, because it was reserved for hockey. And uh, I got out of my car. I was late for the shoot um, because of traffic. And I got out of my car and said, hockey, I am hockey. <laughs> she didn't get the joke, but uh, I got in and turned around and parked somewhere else. <laughs> it didn't work. Anyways, uh, <laughs> if my uh, producer George is out there listening, I hope he gets a uh, kick out of that because I think I told him the story. Anyways, uh, directed by Hal Ashby, this is uh, summarized very quickly. Uh, when a sailor, Larry Meadows, played by Randy Quaid, Ooh, old school's crazy. I was going to say, dude, back when Randy Quaid was still, you could still like him before he yep. evolved into whatever the hell he is now. Before his shitter was full. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> when, when Sailor Larry Meadows is sentenced to eight years in a New Hampshire prison, uh, Navy lifers Billy Badusky and Mule Mulhale uh, are assigned to escort him there from Virginia. Along the way, they warm up to their prisoner, indulging him in small ways, such as making excursions to a brothel and to his mother's house as they get closer to their, as they get closer to their destination uh their fondness for larry makes it harder for them to execute their orders uh by the way i've been in new hampshire and uh if you're gonna do eight years in the prison make it in new hampshire man that's like uh pretty sweet <laughs> up there <laughs> not, not, not a lot of violent crime over there is that what you're saying yeah i gotta do uh i gotta do a bid in napa valley you know it's rough oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah going down to palm springs penitentiary Dude, you know, I mean, they're going to make me drink Estancia instead of, uh, you know, <laughs> Silver Oak. I don't know what to do with myself as much as Swill. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, man, again, it's been probably shit two decades since I've seen that. So, um, uh, but yeah, that being said, it is one of those movies where there's a handful of scenes that really just leave an impression on you. So I'm really, really looking forward to watching it again. And hopefully everyone, you are too. Once again, you're going to check out the last detail in anticipation of next week's episode. And we will see you then on Esoterica Cinema. Stay tuned for a fake commercial. Speed up, you jerk. We haven't got all day. I can't. I'm just a Prius. Walt Disney Studios, in conjunction with Mixar Entertainment, brings you the story of Joel, a big truck with an even bigger temper. Slow traffic to the right, Bertha! Hey! Not all Buicks are overweight. Could've fooled me with those fenders! But what he doesn't know is that his life is about to be flipped upside down. Whoa, whoa, whoa! This road's slick with oil! Look out! Where am I? What happened to my tires? I can't feel my tires! I can't feel my tires! Oh, wow. Just relax, man. You took a gnarly spell. Who are you? What is this place? Well, uh, my name's Thunder Lancaster. And you're in the shop, dude. Now Joel will have to learn to put his trust in others to help him get back on the road. We gotta help you out, man. You're just always so... Combustible. I, I can't help it. It's just... It's the way I was built. Oh, come on, man. 
That's not true. That's what I call a faulty transmission. Thunder! How do I thaw this chill of mine? Wow, I'll tell you how. With a little bit of antifreeze, I call love. Thunder? Yeah, Joel? I can't quit you. Walt Disney is proud to present Mixar's Vehicles. Uh, I just need you to know, Joel, that you complete me. Oh, just shut up, you. You had me at hello. Hello.